Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm coming to you live from Sydney, um, pardon me, my name is Keith Rathbone and I'm coming to you live from Sydney, Australia at Macquarie University. I always usually say, but I'm not saying that today because I'm actually at home uh, and I want to warn listeners that I've recently had a baby. So there's a six, a six week old baby uh, in one of the rooms of my house who hopefully will be very quiet, but if not, um, he might make a little bit of noise and I appreciate everyone's understanding. I'm here today with Andrew Guest. He is a professor of psychology and sociology at the University of Portland in Oregon and the director of core curriculum. And on top of all that, he's also the author of a new book uh, that I think is great. Uh, and I really enjoyed reading it. The book is called Soccer in Mind, A Thinking Fan's Guide to the Global Game. It's out with Rutgers in 2022. And um, man, I, I love this book because it put into words, I was just saying to Andrew before we, we turned on the interview, it put into words a lot of the the ways in which I'm struggling as a fan and as a scholar um, to, to kind of, you know, bring those two things into a bit more of agreement um, in a lot of, on a lot of days. So, Andrew, I want to say, one, thank you for writing the book, and two, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks very much. I appreciate the chance to, to talk. One of the reasons I wrote the book was to hopefully engage in good conversations about the soccer and thinking fandom. Andrew, can you just start by telling us a little bit about how you developed this project? Sure. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, I've obviously been engaged with soccer in a lot of different ways over many decades. It's been a big part of my life and my identity. So I've always um, been thinking about the game as it relates to the various endeavors I, I've done. And I, I think I have conflicts. You mentioned your conflicts as a scholar of sports and thinking about your own fandom. Um, I have a lot of those same conflicts. And I also have long struggled with how much of my scholarly work should be focused on sports and, and soccer. And so 
I've gone back and forth over the years. It's, it's, I, I think it actually provides a great access point to a lot of sort of social science insight and educational opportunities, but I've, I've always struggled with um, how much attention to put on it. And so, you know, I've gone back and forth in my own research efforts um, as to how much to try to do kind of more mainstream social science type stuff and more soccer and sports type stuff. And I finally got to a point in my career, I think, where um, I was I was comfortable thinking that uh, I had enough accumulated thoughts and experiences and research perspectives to to try to put it together into a, a book. I um, have occasionally taught a class at my university at the University of Portland that I call the World Cup in Mind and Society. And I've mostly calibrated it around the actual men's World Cups. Um, so I first did it in 2014 and then did it again in 2018. Um, and in a lot of ways, that teaching experience, this is with undergraduates, it, it really forced me to think through all the different um, dimensions that, that I think are meaningful from a social science standpoint, from a psychology standpoint and a sociology standpoint, I've always taught it as a cross-listed class and brought in a bunch of other perspectives. And teaching at the undergraduate level, I think it really challenges me to um, think about the material in ways that are going to be accessible and meaningful for people who are are smart, but are not necessarily deeply immersed in sports studies or sports scholarship. So um, I took a lot of the material from my teaching and, and thought about repurposing it into a book proposal, had a fortuitous um, meeting at a conference of the National uh, North American Society for the Sociology of Sport with the editor, Peter Miklas from Rutgers, who was really helpful um, and interested in the potential project. And, um, and then had a well-timed, mostly well-timed sabbatical, um, which I, where I was actually a Fulbright scholar in Tanzania, but also had some time for writing and was able to, to write there, although um, got cut a little bit short by the pandemic and had to finish up in a, in a basement um, due to pandemic lockdown. But, um, but it's been, you know, a, a project that's sort of been brewing for, for many years in various ways. And it, I finally got to a point in my professional life and my professional work where I, I think I was able to devote some concerted attention to it and to, to do a lot of the, the thinking that is reflected there and, and try to, again, take some of the other work I've been doing over the years and make it, make it accessible in a way that I, I hope works for both, um, again, students and scholars, but also might work for some people that are just what I call thinking fans, people who like, uh, I sometimes think about them as sort of NPR sports fans for the American audience, the kind of people that like sports, but not necessarily just sports radio that like a more, more engaged perspective around it. So, yeah, I mean, um, I, I, I want to ask you almost immediately in some ways, one of the toughest questions of, of the book, uh, but I, I, I want to, what you're saying there makes a lot of sense to me because I, I teach a sports history unit too. And one of the, I don't know if I want to call it struggles, uh, that I have, but one of the, the, things that strike me most about the course every time I teach it is that I take a group of students who signed up for the class because they love sport. And then I, and then I feel like I crushed that a little bit and I feel a little guilty because I'm, you know, I, I want to say to them, you know, the thing that you love has <laughs> actually got this complicated uh, and often um, 
fraught history to it. And then when you start pulling at the strands, you, you some people come with you and some resist it. Um, but you have, I mean, you use that term thinking fan right in your title. And for you, thinking fandom, I think, you know, combines aesthetics, emotion and reason kind of working together. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, you know, what thinking fandom was for you and what separates it maybe from just, you know, fandom writ large, I guess. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sure we could talk about these things for an hour by itself because, yeah, the the teaching piece and, and t- taking students who sign up for a class because they love sports and then having to kind of deconstruct that a little bit, and it, it, that's an ongoing challenge. I know I've had a lot of conversations with sport scholars about that one, and I don't have it entirely worked out because... I do think I do think part of thinking fan and part of how I define it is bringing to it both an intellectual curiosity and a critical consciousness, and that critical consciousness can be hard when you have sort of been immersed in um, the kind of pop media world of sports for many years, and and when that can really be a a very fun world, it can be a very you know enjoyable experience. That's certainly where I was when I was. 18 years old, 22 years old when I was going to college and starting to, to think about these things. So um, that is an ongoing challenge. I, I do think for me, writing the book itself was a chance to think that through and to really try to articulate, I think for a lot of academics and certainly for me, writing is a process of, of thinking and, and um, trying to articulate what what I do think of as thinking fandom and how it can be worthwhile still to watch and engage even when um, bringing some critical consciousness or, or recognizing some of the inequalities or some of the power issues that are embedded um, in sports. And yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have a totally pithy way of, of defining it or saying it, but I do think what I, what I tried to articulate in the book is that um I don't think you should not watch sports for the sort of the easy reasons, the the sheer entertainment value and the and the um, just the fun of being affiliated with the team and the the joy of just watching great athletes do their thing, watching peak performance at at the top level. Um, but I think you can also add on this dimension of thinking fandom. And to me, when you do that, you you really offer opportunities for. And I think one of the ways I phrase it in the book is to enrich your experience of it, um, to, to, to add a depth to it that actually feels meaningful, um, to, to add an educational dimension, to, to use sport as this global phenomenon and soccer in particular, to educate yourself and to educate others, and also for impact, to, to um, sort of think about the fact that sports is not a static entity and soccer is not a static entity and that it's evolving and it can evolve for the common good, the greater good, or it can evolve, uh, evolve to something that's deeply problematic. And so I think thinking fandom offers that opportunity for impact. So to, again, the goal I think is to be enriching, educational, impactful. I've also definitely learned through my career and through working on these issues and trying to do some even just at a local level, kind of public scholarship, that it's definitely not for everybody. I mean, I, I do get um, pushed 
some students and I get pushback from people in the community of like this, this does, you know, for, for a lot of people, it, it detracts from the fun of it. So, um, I, I have kind of come to some degree of peace with that, that I'm not going to convert everybody to this, but, um, and you know, there's lots of other people that are also doing, doing similar things and trying to engage fans. But, um, I do think that there is a audience for it and um, there are plenty of very thoughtful sports fans out there who I do think um, can be encouraged and sort of nudged towards thinking about that particular form of engagement, bringing that intellectual curiosity, bringing that critical consciousness as a complement to all the other great things that sports fandom can at its best provide. Of course, acknowledging that sports fandom I do think can bring some problematic uh, issues along with it as well. So um, I don't uh, know if that's. Yeah, no, of- that, well, look, uh, yeah, I, t- I, I, I admitted when I asked the question, I thought, oh, thinking fandom, defining it is actually the, the toughest issue in some ways, because actually I don't think you provide, I don't think you provide one answer. Actually, you say you have to do the thing, like the, you as the fan have to do the thinking, <laughs> Um, but you, you're, 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 for me, that layering of critical consciousness was so important. And I, for me, there's definitely an audience for this. Um, you mentioned kind of teaching and I could see assigning, you know, some of this to, to undergraduate classes. But when I was reading it, one of the weird things about living in Australia is that it's a small pond, um, in some ways. So you, you meet people who work in the sports industry, you meet scholars working on sports. I was like, you know, some of the guys I know working in, you know, football or soccer here or rugby here who work in the federations, like they would benefit from reading a book like this because so many times I have a conversation with them and I get that pushback from them. You know, it's just entertainment, mate. And it's like, well, yeah, but at the same time, you know, I see you wearing your indigenous round jerseys. I see you wearing your, you know, um, your pride, you know, jerseys, like you, is that just sports washing? What are we doing here? Like we're in such a political moment of sports, but this provides a kind of, I mean, it's not, it's not just a call to fans, but also kind of, um, in some, for me, we're reading it in some ways, um, provided some tools or what you call lenses for kind of understanding ways you can apply critical consciousness to fandom. Right. So I was like, ah, I need to hand this to this guy. I need to give a copy to that guy. Not that they would read it necessarily if I gave it to them, because I, I get that pushback too. I I, uh, I post the letters that people send me that uh, you know when I when I argued for getting equal pay for women in in, in soccer um, in Australia, someone sent me a letter saying that my wife must wear the pants in our house, and I printed that up and put it up in my office. You know. <laughs> So you, you do get this pushback, but it, I, I love the book because it's it didn't actually answer those questions. You know, you didn't say my critical consciousness is the right one, but you said you had like you would actually enjoy sport more um, in different ways, richer ways. If you if you layer it, if you try to understand the way it works a bit better. So, yeah, I, no, I love yeah, that's great. To, it's great to hear. I appreciate that. And I, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would love it if it if the book got some audience amongst uh, the types of folks you're talking about, I actually, I, I try to say in the introduction that I, um, I don't, when I, when I talk about thinking fandom, I don't mean for it to only be for fans that I actually think you should, you could include players and coaches and parents and 
you know, all the, all the folks that are invested in the game in one way or another, or in sports in one way or another. And yeah, and it definitely is a bit of a, I mean, I think in a lot of my different work endeavors, I tend to be somewhat pragmatic and trying to find kind of middle grounds. I also, you know, I get them in this position as a director of a liberal arts core curriculum. And part of the idea there is to be able to listen to all the different perspectives and let them all kind of percolate in ways that will enrich the the broader discussion. And um, so, you know, I think sports is the same thing. It's, it's easy to either just turn off the critical consciousness entirely and just say, hey, it's just sports made, as you said. Um, but sometimes it's also easy for people that are critical of it, I think, to just write it off, you know, to kind of give it up and say like, hey, this is so corrupt and it's so deeply flawed that I, I want nothing to do with it. And, um, I, you know, I actually think having people like that is useful for, again, pushing the the discussion and the debate. But I also think it's important to have people who are engaged critically still engage and to, to really um, sort of think about the issues and engage with the issues. And again, for me, that's part of the fun of it. Like the discussions that you can have around sports, it, it often provides a space to have discussions about things you might not be able to approach directly otherwise. And, um, and again, I think if you either turn off or kind of turn on without any, any leavening of, uh, you know, different lenses and more critical perspectives, then you lose something in, in terms of what's possible. Yeah, I, I, I think we could talk, I mean, I'm sure we could talk about the kind of generalities more. And I do hope that we can talk in our discussion in the chapters in more specificity about these lenses, because a lot of your introduction deals with um, the kind of different sociological or psychological approaches to understanding sports. So um, people who who are keen and want to read it, they should um, definitely check that out. Um, the introduction to get more detail into those particular lenses, but I want to move on to the the um, the bodies. You know, the body of the work. Uh, you have chapters on fans, culture, players, uh, performances, impacts, initiatives, future, and, f- and finally futures. But let's start with fans. And you, you talk about um, fandom. You, you say in your introduction that one of the things that you can do. Um, with your work, because soccer soccer is a kind of empty signifier in some ways, is use it for identity work. And you say fandom is kind of identity work itself. So I wonder if you can explain that idea a little bit. Like in this chapter, what are you trying to do? How are you how are you explaining identity um, through the look at sport? Yeah, sure. Um, I yeah the I, the subtitle of the chapter is losing your mind and finding your place and. And I think the latter part of that is getting at what you're talking about, the identity work piece. Um, but that losing your mind piece is also important. I, I think I'm trying to kind of argue in the chapter that that fandom is, you know, multiple things, that there's um, different different layers to it and that there are some, you know, relatively base kind of human experiences there. There's some deep human nature that gets embedded in the emotional reactions we have in the catharsis we sometimes feel and the kind of joy and the anger and in all those kinds of things. Um, and I do think that provides a, a foundation, but, um, but at the same time, that is again, complemented by, uh, by this identity work. And I'm, I'm a big fan in social psychology of social identity theory. And this idea that one of our 
sort of um, most basic human psychological drives and instincts is to affiliate with groups. And um, for better and for worse, sports and soccer provide a, a salient group. There's actually a lot of specific reasons for that. If you look at some of the details of social identity theory, some of the things that make groupness salient in our lives generally apply really well to sports, like having sort of, you know, uh, external markers and things like in soccer fans, when soccer fans wear scarves or when they wear replica jerseys, like those are the exact kinds of external markers that they're talking about there. Having competition is one of the the things that brings out groupness in us, right? And sports and soccer is obviously really ripe for that. Um, all these kinds of things, I think, just make make soccer and sports a really rich space in which we do sort of find identities, cultivate identities, evolve identities. And, and I also think, you know, one of my main academic areas is lifespan development and the fan of the classics like Eric Erickson. And he, he kind of says identity work is, is the fundamental task of a lot of adult life, young adult life. And we work that out in many, many different ways through relationships, through work, through um, family, through lots of, through geography. But I do think sports is one, one piece. I don't want to say it's a dominant piece, but I do want to say it's, it's a piece and it, it helps us think about. And I think part of the sort of appeal of fandom is identifying communities that um, we want to identify with, that we feel like we might share some values with, or that have some meaning in terms of place. Um, and it does just again, for better and for worse, help us um, define other aspects of our identity, what it means to, again, um, you know, some issues around gender identity and cultural identity and, and some of these kinds of things. So I, in that particular chapter, I do end up um, talking some about the research I did with uh, Portland Thorns fans, which um, where I live in Portland, Oregon, the, the Thorns are the women's professional team that have historically been quite a big deal here. And um, at some point I realized that as far as I can tell, as far as I know, the Thorns are the highest drawing women's professional team um, in the world on average. Now, again, there's a lot of you know Champions League games in Europe and things like that that get single crowds that are bigger. Um, but in terms of a professional team with average attendance, a lot of the European league for women have very small attendance figures and the, the thorns had, for many seasons have drawn in the you know 18 to 20,000 fans um, per, per game average range. And it just raised this interesting question for me of why, like what, what is it that is making fans in Portland um, attend to women's soccer in a way that doesn't happen in other parts of the world. And I do think some of it is about, identity and it's about values and it's it's not just about the soccer itself it's about um what the thorns represent it's about the sort of local political consciousness around wanting to empower women and i should say i don't just think this i mean this is what people told me in the in the research that i did right with surveys and interviews and i also had a, a good um, student colleague who helped me with the project and so those kinds of things, I think, are what I'm referring to when I'm talking about identity work is is ways of um, that our fandom, um, it does tap these bases, basic instincts of human nature, but it also um, helps situate us and it helps us to um, think about the communities we want to be part of and um, sort of engage with groups in a way that that helps define how we are identifying.
one of the things I like about your book, Andrew, and to continue on with what you're saying there is how much of your research is also driven by your own experience. So in every chapter, almost, we get to see a little bit of how your own experience drives your drives kind of your, I don't want to say drives your research agenda, but at least informs it. And so you have, you know, this experience of the Portland Thorns, but also, you know, your experience as a fan of the U.S. men's national team and how actually those don't like they have their own complications in some ways, Um, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes, um, you know, uh, driven by this emotion and other times driven by this more critical consciousness. So I, I guess. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about yourself then as a, as a fan and how you, how you, how your own fandom kind of shapes your understanding. Like how do you use yourself as a subject? I guess is the question. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. It's a good question and a, you know, dangerous question. And also in terms of the book dangerous as I I didn't want to insert too much of myself in there because I'm not that interesting of a person, you know, no, 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 you're very standard issue, (laughs) standard issue. Well, you know, I'm a standard issue academic, but, um, but I also do think that, um, again, drawing on experience and, um, drawing on my own research, that's obviously what I know the best. And I hope that it provides a, a good access point for, um, some, some, you know, stories and some ways of engaging the material that, that, can resonate with people, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I think for me, you know, again, it, it is a matter of constantly toggling between, um, kind of the, what's out there in terms of the literature and what's out there in terms of theory and what's out there in terms of existing research, um, my own observations and, and experiences, and then, you know, doing the empirical work and trying to keep an open mind and trying to, be intellectually curious, as I as I say, in relation to um, thinking fandom. I just, again, in, in my own work at my university, is where I'm getting ready for a, a first year seminar course where we're trying to introduce students to to you know thinking through the liberal arts. And I think um, part of what we're encouraging to do is is think about those different dimensions of the kind of knowledge construction process, sort of um, looping between experience research, imagination, and the kind of knowledge that's out there, the the wisdom that is already there. And and so that is an implicit part of my own way of thinking about, about soccer and about sports. And it has been such an important part of my life. And again, I, I'm not a, you know, I was never a, a national team player, but I did play minor league professional soccer for a couple of years in a, in a way that was very borderline, but was, was a really interesting and eye-opening experience. Um, you know, I was never a high, high level coach, but I, I did coach enough to, um, I coached at university level in the U S and I also coached in some youth programs, like some of what in the U S they call Olympic development programs, but sort of elite programs, which with actually some players who did end up playing in the world cup. And, um, but I've also coached, you know, at the, as I talk in the book, like at the middle school down the street where, you know, kids are, have no real ambitions for future professional stardom, but are having a lot of fun just sort of engaging with the game. So um, I think using all those experiences and trying to, again, use them as access points um, for some 
some ways of thinking about the game that that might be bringing in both the high level and the grassroots stuff. Um, it is important to me, and I, you know, again, I, I, I think, I, I hope I have accumulated enough kind of diverse experiences that that there are a range of things to to sample from, and and that that is part of another point of the book, right? I really promote, I try to promote and and extol the value of taking a sort of, you know, a pluralism perspective that like soccer is not just one experience, as you said a minute ago, I, I talk about it as sort of an empty signifier that can be filled in, but the way it gets filled in is by experiences and by uh, sort of what people engage with in, in different contexts. So um, yeah, that's part of what I'm trying to pitch, I think. No, I, I love that. I love that in your book. And I don't want to skip too far ahead. But um, when you're writing about Diego, for example, and uh, not I don't, like I said, I don't want to skip too far ahead. But in one of in some of your later work, when you're talking more specifically about grassroots uh, soccer, and this guy, Diego, uh, this this boy, Diego, who plays doesn't have legs and plays with his hands, but his friends are okay with that. And they say, if it hits, you know, the, his leg stumps, maybe that's a handball for him. It just made me I mean, one, the amazing creativity of of children who, uh, you know, can claim ownership of the game and make it themselves. They don't need FIFA to tell them what the rules are, uh, which I thought is is great. And also always a reminder of, of who really owns the game from my point of view. Um, but yeah, that yeah, your work really does do that. It doesn't. I, I mean, we'll talk a minute in the next few chapters are really about kind of higher level of football in some respects. Um, but, um, the, the book balances really nicely between concentrating on, you know, elite athletes and, uh, the grassroots. And so that needs, it needs to be said, um, your, your next chapter is about cultures and you've got your subtitle soccer is familiar, soccer is strange. It, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, how you used that, I think quite uh, well-known idea to to investigate soccer and what you eventually call it a kind of global game and you use england brazil south africa i don't think we have time to talk about all three we'd be here all day um but maybe just one example of kind of unpicking the way in which uh in one of those places the game is changing as it's both becoming more is, is remaining more local and and becoming more global yeah um yeah, I mean, I think that the idea of soccer and familiar, soccer is familiar, soccer is strange, as you as you note, comes from that um, well-known aphorism amongst academics. And I, I've always, I think I was first introduced to it learning about ethnography and, you know, what good ethnography does and the idea that good ethnography makes the familiar strange and the strange familiar. And um, I've always found that compelling and I found it useful, again, in, in talking to students. And, um, and I think... For me, it's a it's a nice uh, again a nice um, guide for thinking fandom in the sense that part of what you're trying to do is take these things that you just take for granted about your experience with soccer or about the way that soccer should work and try to defamiliarize those a bit and try to think about them as as meaningful as constructed as you know strange in a way um, and then also take things that are that do feel strange when you run into um, you know, rituals or cultures or things around the game that that are unfamiliar to you to to be curious about those, to learn about those, and to engage with those. So, yeah, I mean, I try to do that. There's 
when I again when I go through this kind of material with students, we it's fun to pick almost any country because you can do this for almost any country. I also am a little I, I feel a little bit badly and I try to qualify. I don't you know, country and culture is not the same thing. Um, so I, I wish I could be more nuanced about that. But yeah, I talk about England, South Africa, um, Brazil, just as, as examples that came up to me for um, being able to make particular points um, around, you know, again, the identity issues, the, um, the way that culture embeds these sort of contradictions and these tensions and the, and the, and also issues of power. And, um, you know, I think that's, if I, if I were going to give one example, I might mention that one around South Africa and such a fascinating um, sport culture in South Africa and soccer culture. And um, I, I really uh, have had a lot of uh, experiences over the years in sub-Saharan Africa, not specifically in South Africa, although I've been a number of times, but that 2010 World Cup made South Africa, kind of put soccer in South Africa on the radar um, for so many people around the world. And, um, for the most part, that was, that was good. I think it was enriching, but the world cup itself, it sometimes, um, you know, lends itself to some fairly thin, <laughs> um, cultural analysis on major TV networks. And when you, when you really learn about the history of, of soccer in South Africa, um, there's just so much fascinating, um, material there and so many, so such a fascinating history around how, um, race and also class, um, gets embedded and gender as well gets embedded in, in soccer. And, um, it's not as simple. Sometimes the simple story is, you know, in South Africa, soccer is a black game and rugby is a white game. And, um, that's, that's an over, that's a massive oversimplification. I think scholars like Chris Bolsman and Peter Alegi have, have done really interesting work historically um, to unpack that and to sort of talk about the fact that there, there have always been, um, you know, different racial groups playing um, soccer in South Africa, but often in sort of particular spaces and spaces that are not just random, um, but spaces that are embedded with, with power and with um, sort of class dynamics and with issues of, you know, who does and doesn't get to, doesn't get to play. Um, there's also some really good work on women's soccer in South Africa. And um, there's a lot of also sort of power issues there. Um, Cynthia Pellick did a great um, old paper that I cite in the chapter about um, how, again, women's soccer brings an additional layer of um, power dynamics into the, the, the ways that we construct um, the, the, what it means to play soccer in South Africa. And so, um, I don't know, I mean, again, without going into the whole argument of the, of the chapter, I would just use that as an example of the type of, of analysis that I'm trying to, trying to offer there. Yeah, no, the, I, I love this chapter for its comparative ele element in the, the following chapter as well, and which you're able to kind of weave together to say, oh, there are these there's a broad trend, this glo this globalization that as the game globalizes, it seems to flatten, but actually the the local, the distinct distinct local cultures can um, never really be flattened. Even if FIFA comes in with a billion dollars, they can't really get rid of some of the some of the good and some of the bad. Um, so we can create these kind of powerful images, the Yoga Benito in Brazil. But actually, 
you know, if you watch Brazil play, it's it's a little bit complicated. And yeah, maybe we don't have quite the same game now that public space is used differently in Brazil. But yet, um, it's there is still something very Brazilian. <laughs> so it's that was a really a, I, unfortunately, Andrew. I, because so so many of your chapters are kind of like cases, instead, you know, it's hard to each one we could talk about for a long time. I feel like. Yeah, I, I will, no, that's right. And I didn't, yeah, I didn't get to the local piece. I appreciate you just articulated it nicely. I think the the idea that there is this, there's always this global element, but there's also um, a local in, infusion. And that's where that globalization concept, I think, is is so useful. So thank you for coming back. To <laughs> no, I'm, I'm comp- you did all the work. I'm, I just read the book. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I love the next chapter. I have to ask you, though, I assume that the idea that we should be helping Qatar with their with their development was a little tongue in cheek. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, this chapter, the next one is on players and talent development. So I, I, I did want to ask you, um, you again, you, you this is, in this chapter, you use three examples. You've got Holland and the Netherlands, you've got Ghana and you've got Iceland. And, and you kind of start with this question of, of talent development. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what is talent, talent development in sport? How, when should we use it? What does it mean? Like, what's the goal and what's the lesson of talent development? Yeah, that's another big question and a, and a good one and a fun one. And one I love to spend time talking to folks about, um, I mean, I, the thing that strikes me in my own review of the sort of social science literature here is that, you know, there is this this idea that somehow we might be able to find the perfect talent development system. And and I, you see this in a lot of national soccer cultures, a lot of national soccer efforts. You certainly see it in the U.S. You know, should we adopt a, a, a Brazilian system? Should we adopt a British system? Should we adopt a, a Dutch system? And um, as if there is sort of one right talent development um, system in order to produce excellent players. And I have several problems with that. One is I just don't think that's possible because that's not how people work. People are more complicated than, you know, chemicals. And you can't just perfectly design a formula that will that will produce the right result every time. Um, so I talk it's in the not chapter two thousand touches a day, or <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Um, I mean, there is a certainly a you know there's value to systematizing, and there's there's better and worse, that's for sure. But I talk in the chapter about the combination of nature and nurture, and also access and luck, and I do think all four of those things. Um, I do think all four of those things matter. The other issue I have, and I try to bring this out in the chapter, is that um, you know I don't think thinking about talent development. And player development should only be about performance. I don't think it should only be about just producing elite level um, athletes. And this is where I really like the Icelandic example because Iceland is, you know, this tiny country in terms of population. I mean, it's three hundred fifty thousand people. It's the size of Omaha, Nebraska, um, and they have been, although they've been on a little bit of a downslide in the, in recent years for for a number of years, they were just spectacular. You know, they were. They beat England in the 2016 European Championships. And how did they do it? Well, part of the way they did it was by thinking of youth soccer as not just an opportunity to develop great athletes, but as an opportunity to develop healthy youth, healthy kids. And they made very intentional efforts in that regard. And so when you saw a lot of the stories around Iceland's rise, you saw stories about, oh, they 
you know, their coaches do this or their um, talent development system does this. But there, there's also really interesting research and um, good journalism about how Iceland also just looked at youth sports as a chance to provide a, a, a healthy outlet for for kids. And um, so I, I, I talk about that in the chapter as a more sort of humanitarian model of, um, or sorry, humanistic model of talent development. And and um, in contrast to something like the Dutch system, which I think tends to be more technocratic, um, of course, there's also dimensions of humanism in there. But um, And I, I think that when you talk about talent development, you do have to be careful to think about what's the end goal. I mean, is the end goal just to produce 11 good players to walk out on a world cup stage. Um, sometimes it feels like that when you look at some of the sports science. Um, but I think if most people step back, they would say, that's not really what we want out of our, our youth development systems. And so, yeah. So in that chapter, I'm trying to kind of play with and explore different ways of thinking about what talent development means and really what should be the priorities when we're trying to, develop young young players and when we're trying to um, develop players of any type, really. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I, I love this chapter because... Um, I mean, I don't know if you did it intentionally, but I feel like it's a bit of a riposte to a lot of the academic literature on how much money do you need to spend on a gold medal and how much do you, which is just kind of, for me, at least, um, the, the tail leading the dog, like that can't be what the purpose of, of our, of all this in public investment in sports is just to earn gold medals. I feel like it's, we're really missing the opportunity. I was 110% with you on this chapter. I read this and I'm putting exclamation points, you know? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sometimes in this world, they talk about the sort of talent pyramid, right? And the, the idea that you have this base of all these kind of amateur players and it sharpens up to the, the very elite players. And it does feel to me like often, um, you know, sort of the, the, sports systems are designed to really sharpen the tip of the pyramid and not to think about the base. But, but part of what the Icelandic example shows is that you can, you, you can accomplish some of the same goals. You can, you know, win gold medals and win world cups by broadening the base too, by providing this, these pr- providing access, by providing opportunities, by providing fun, good experiences. And then, you know, the very best players will still filter up. So it doesn't feel to me like a either or proposition. And that, again, I, I Iceland to me is the best example of that, but um, I hope, and there are other examples and you're right. It is to some extent a, a 
an effort, a repost against that idea that when you think about the talent pyramid, what deserves all the attention is the, you know, the only the elites. I, I think there's another way to think about it. So. Yeah, I, 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 well, I, just from my own point of view, I love this chapter. I was like, yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> your next chapter, uh, in some ways, was the one that I, I also really enjoyed, but I was most um, out to see in some ways because I just don't have as much background in sports psychology. So this one is your your chapter on performances. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about what you were trying to do with this chapter, um, and. Uh, you know, from your perspective as as someone who, who you know works as a in in as both a social scientist and as a as a professor of psychology. Yeah, um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is this in some ways is my uh, some of where I started with sports studies when I was first going to graduate school. I you know I kind of thought I wanted to be a a sports psychologist, whatever that meant, and I didn't really understand what it meant, and it's still kind of a <laughs> A complicated term, um, but I did quickly realize that I, you know, I didn't enjoy what I think is sometimes not always, but sometimes a challenge in sports psychology of only focusing on, again, performance without that that human element, without that humanistic element, and um, and so I think in this chapter I was trying to to sort of give a nod to the the kind of more rote performance enhancement stuff, which which can actually be useful. I mean, there's no um, no question about that. I think some of the more straightforward performance enhancement techniques can be useful, but to also broaden it out a little bit and to think about um, the the sort of psychology in, in sport as not just being about cultivating mental skills, but also being about, um, again, trying to use sports towards you know empowerment and some of the other, uh, and some of the identity work stuff and some of those kinds of things. So, um, yeah, I did a long time ago. I did a blog post that I have shared sometimes since that was called Sports Psychology is the Future and It Always Will Be. And um, it does kind of feel like one of those things where this this idea that you should be able to have kind of mental skills coaches with every team and it should just be as standard as having a strength and conditioning coach um, has always been around. And it's never quite worked out that way. There is, a, I think, more sports psychology than there used to be. But um and I think one of the reasons is because there's nothing that's that magical to it. I mean, it's, you know, it's goal setting and visualization and um, arousal management, relaxation techniques, things like that. And so um, at the end of the day, the stuff that's more interesting for me is some of the, the identity stuff. I, you know, I finished the chapter talking about kind of soccer and the self. And um, again, as, as somebody who studies lifespan development, it always interests me how players evolve over the course of their careers, not just as players, but as people. And um, so I talk some about a player like Landon Donovan, who, you know, I don't, I've never, never had the opportunity to meet Landon Donovan, but he's identified as, you know, potentially the best American player of, of all time. And, um, but he had a really interesting journey. I mean, he started as a professional very young. He, he took a sabbatical at one point because he was feeling burned out, which is, you know, sabbaticals are common for academics, but not so much for professional athletes. Um, and I just find stories like that really interesting to think about what's, what's the psychology in that, right? What's, you know, he, he was sort of primed to be this performance machine and he was, I mean, he was a great player and he did great things on the field, but it, it did feel like, and I think to his credit, like he also was trying to be more than that. He was trying to be more than a performance machine. You know, there's this great old book, 
critical of sports psychology called mortal engines. And this, this critical scholar, John Hoberman, was talking about how um, sometimes athletes are treated as if they're just engines that need to be tuned. And, and, um, I, and that there is some type, there are some types of sports psychology that, that they do that. That's what they treat athletes, not as people, but as uh, machines. And um, I, I, I find it really fascinating stories of people who kind of step outside that. And, um, and I think it's really worthwhile. So that, that was a lot of what I was trying to kind of, I was kind of trying to give credit to the performance enhancement stuff as, as worth thinking about, but also um, broaden the scope a little bit in terms of what, what we think about with um, sports psychology. I, I will say uh, just as a couple um, adds to this chapter for um, listeners, uh, as someone who missed a penalty kick in a high school playoff game one time, I could have used this chapter <laughs> beforehand and afterwards. Uh, <laughs> um, so people really interested in kind of the 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 nuances of psychology, penalty penalty kick taking and choking. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting discussion on that. But the other thing I really loved about this chapter, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about it, Andrew, is you know you you took the 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 two axes of sports psychology but you also added this so, sociological axis and you kind of have an image at the beginning of your chapter about it but um is this is how much of this how, how do i want to phrase this question like how much did adding the sociological change to your change your understanding of what sports psychology is or should do yeah, no, thank you for bringing that up. This is a this is a fun one for me that I've thought about a lot over the years, and it's one of those things where all of us academics have these like. There's a paper there that I've been meaning to write for, <laughs> for years and have never quite got to it. I, well, let's not I've talk actually, about papers. <laughs> yeah, I have I have presented about this at some sports psych type meetings, but yeah, there's this, this classical sort of. Um, two-dimensional diagram from the American Psychological Association division on sports psychology that sort of talks about the, the the question of performance issues and mental health issues. And, you know, the question is, are sports psychologists dealing with, there, there are certain types of kind of people who are interested in sports psychology who deal more with performance issues, certain that deal more with mental health issues, um, and some that deal with both. And you kind of have to think about athletes in that regard. You have to think about what are the you know, what are they really needing? Are, are they just needing performance um, enhancement or are they also needing mental health stuff? And at some point it just struck me that you really also need to add social issues to that, to that um, grid. I think it needs to be three-dimensional because I think, you know, using the, the sociological imagination where uh, personal issues are, can't be extracted from public issues. Um, the ways we think about performance and the ways we think about athlete mental health are embedded in broader social structures and they're embedded in the broader ways that the sports system is constructed, that sport cultures are constructed. And so, you know, again, a, to go back to the example of, of Landon Donovan, it's, you know, his own challenges with whatever he was challenged with or um, is, is not just about his individual psychology. It's also about, the, he, he's been embedded in these sports systems and these sport cultures for, for most of his life. And that, that the, the expectation that he plays in Europe or else he's a failure or something like that, when really that wasn't maybe a fair expectation. And certainly he scored a lot of his best goals after he came back from labor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and even just, again, the idea that I, I think for a lot of young players now, the idea that, um, 
you know, that school, staying in school is kind of a mistake because you've got to take advantage of your window opportunity to, to go to, to, to Europe or to, you know, for the elite players or to kind of go to an academy as young as possible. Um, that's, you know, we could debate that, and but that's part of the sort of social construction of the system, right? And that, and the impacts of that on a player, both for good and for bad, are not just about the individual player. So, so this is where I think really mixing those psychological lenses and sociological lenses is just—it's just a lot of fun for me, and it's—it's it's sort of—I I think it offers insight that you don't get from just looking at one perspective or the other. So, um, yeah. So again, I appreciate you pointing out that uh, that framing because that that does. Um, Feel like what bringing multiple lenses to thinking about soccer and thinking about sports can offer. And you talked about um, this chapter as also being about empowerment. And one of the things you talk about it is is one of the things that you talk about is the idea of identity foreclosure. And for me, that's a good segue into the last two chapters um, because the the final two chapters, in some way, I, I wish we could talk about them separately, but just in the interest of time, in some ways, for me, they work together. Uh, and you, I mean, in your book, you kind of talk about them working together. Um, you have your chapters, impacts and initiatives and impacts asks, I think, um, in some ways, the most important question in the book, which is, you know, do sports build character? Do they help us be better people? Is sport a broad social good? And, and then in initiatives, you kind of look at whether soccer can help um, in international development or in, in, uh, peace, um, you know, help promote peace. Um, so I wondered if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, those, that's a huge issue, right? Those two chapters alone could, are obviously huge. Every one of your chapters is a huge issue. Um, but I wonder if you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, is, is soccer, able to produce social good does it build character on an individual level on a on a social level i know that's a huge question so I'm, i apologize <laughs> yeah no and that i mean the fun thing about that one is that that one comes up often enough that i sort of do have a pat answer which is you know can soccer build character can it do good yes as long as <laughs> it's done with intention and attention right and the the challenge is that it's often just sort of assumed um that it will and i think that's true in again this case of individual players like this the classic old kind of sports builds character thing without any intention or attention with just just sort of rolling out a ball um and then also it's true with a lot of the development initiatives right like oh you know kids love playing soccer and so we'll we'll help them play soccer and it will change their lives and um, I'm oversimplifying and do, using a bit of a caricature here, but I do think that's part of what those chapters are trying to um, unpack and argue against and, and say that, yeah, of course, sports can build character. I mean, I had lots of great experiences with soccer myself. It's, um, and I, I have, in all my coaching, I have always hoped that it will help kids with certain dimensions of character and can it do good in the world? Yeah. Again, of course, I think I've, also spent a lot of time on sports and development initiatives internationally and particularly in East and Southern Africa. And um, can it do good? Yeah, of course. But does it automatically? No. And it, it's sort of sometimes surprising how that point, which doesn't seem particularly complicated, is missed. It's, it's just um, there's an assumption of intrinsic goodness. The sociologist, the sports sociologist Jay Coakley talks about this as the great sports myth. Um, 
and it, it is often embedded in sort of pop media presentations of sports that, you know, you just give them sports and good things will happen. And um, I think part of what the value of a more social science perspective or a more scholarly perspective is, is challenging people to unpack that a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, in the impacts chapter, just for example, I talked some about a paper I did years ago on, on um, women athletes as role models. And this was another paper I had the opportunity to do partially with a, with a student who happened to be playing with the U.S. national team at the time, the University of Portland had a top-ranked women's soccer program, and um, and she was great. And I again help, help, um, did a did a really good sort of thesis project, um, and then turned some of the data over to me. So I don't blame her for the interpretations, but um, my interpretation and what we found, we surveyed, you know, the the player pool for the U.S. women's national team, and we surveyed um, elite college players and. We asked them all kinds of standardized inventory questions about different dimensions of personality and different dimensions of character. And um, and essentially what we found was that they just mapped very nicely onto the normal distribution, onto the standard, um, the standard way that any sample of people looks, which is, in other words, some have very high character or, you know, very um, pro-social personality traits. Others have the opposite. And the bulk of them are somewhere in the middle, right? They're, they're people, they're, they're human beings. And, um, and so, um, there was nothing particular that we found about them being athletes other than the expectation that they be role models. Um, and that I think gets interesting too, especially for, um, women and, um, minoritized athletes where there's a sort of, um, a social expectation, a structural expectation that they are not just athletes, that they do more than that. And, there's a lot of ways in which that's actually problematic and it's sort of unfair. It, um, it sort of individualizes social issues. It sort of suggests that, um, you know, if women don't succeed in sports or in soccer or in whatever, it's because of individual role models, right. And, um, or a lack of individual role models. And, and I think that's a, that's a problematic assumption. So, um, things like that, again, I think give interesting access and thought provoking opportunities to, to sort of consider, some of the the cliches around sports and some of the assumptions that again i think of this sort of great sports myth that um people like jay coakley talk about in really interesting ways yeah it was when i was reading the chapter i i don't know how much um australian sport uh, soccer in australia's qualification for the last world cup is uh played in the u.s but we had a similar situation that made me think made that your chapter made me think of which was the public um, conversation about the Australian goalkeeper uh, during the penalty kick they had with uh, penalty kicks they had with Uruguay, the um, Australian goalkeeper saw that the Uruguayan keeper was looking at his water bottle because he had his notes on where people were kicking, you know, <laughs> are they going to kick right, left? And so w- when the Australian goalkeeper in one of the interchanges uh, realized what he was doing. He picked up the Uruguayan goalkeeper's water bottle and he threw it into the stands. <laughs> and the Australian public was ex- enormously divided, uh, but eventually, um, I think, kind of sided with the goalkeeper. It was a bit like, you know, oh, all is fair, <laughs> and we qualify. <laughs> um, and he's the gray wiggle, which, if you're Australian, would have more relevance, or if you have kids under the age of five. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, that's, again, that's part of the fun about soccer, right? It provides this public text for these moral debates and moral dilemmas. And, 
yeah, when you actually look at the research on moral development and athletes, it generally suggests that, you know, athletes are willing to make a lot of moral compromises and it, it, um, and some of that is because of the culture of sports, right? It's you're socialized into this idea that winning is, is what ultimately matters. And you've got to, you know, there's all, I talk in the book a little bit about all these, you know, the t-shirts for sports teams that say, you know, you, you know, pain is temporary, pride is forever and all these kinds of things that really actually send curious moral messages. And, um, but the example you're using is great because it, it, uh, it also highlights how it creates this, again, this fun public text for, for talking about this stuff and debating this stuff and thinking about this stuff. And, and again, the, the hope is that people scratch a little deeper than just their gut instincts around whether that's a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do, but sort of raise questions about why do people do that and why do we debate it so vociferously? I, w- I'm, I, I promise, Andrew, I could ask 100,000 more questions. <laughs> um, and you do have one chapter we haven't touched, but I, I and I'm, unfortunately, I just, I think we need to kind of move past it in the interest of time. But I want to tell the listeners this last chapter on initiative that looks at kind of the potential and the peril of soccer for development, looking explicitly uh, at, at three different groups, uh, grassroots soccer, which is a group that is uh, helping, has helped, or maybe um, a more complicated story uh, of the fight against uh, HIV AIDS, uh, one world football, the effort to make a uh, indestructible football that can be used everywhere. Uh, but it was done by people who don't care that much about soccer, <laughs> just kind of... Um, well, for want of a better term, maybe tech bros <laughs> is, a, is a term that could be used. And then the one that I found really fascinating and I wanted to know more about um, this women fighters, uh, this uh, group of female uh, footballers uh, in Zanzibar. So it's all really fascinating. Uh, but I want to bring us uh, kind of to the end and conclusions. Uh, your book raised so many questions for me. I have to admit, Andrew, and I, I loved it. I wondered if there was something special about soccer. I wondered, um, you know, if the thinking fan can really change the structures. But I guess the question I want to ask you is kind of, well, we'll have two final questions. But the last question about the uh, explicitly about the book that I wanted to ask you is what what from your point of view is the future of soccer? And maybe does a, a line that I saw in your book, does women's soccer kind of provide a way forward? If if we were all better thinking fans about women's soccer, would we have a maybe a healthier relationship with the game and with ourselves? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it can. I worry that it get, um, you know, that the women's game is kind of sometimes going too eagerly down the road of the men's game and sort of using that as the standard and kind of saying like, hey, we should be just like like men's soccer. And, you know, part of the point I try to make at the end of the book, I think, is there's a lot of problems with men's soccer. Like you don't we don't necessarily want to hold that up as the standard to aspire to. Right. And I do really enjoy um, women's soccer because it offers alternative possibilities. And in fact, I, I would say I, I enjoy any type of soccer that involves alternative possibilities. I think this is part of the reason I enjoy grassroots soccer and I enjoy, um, you know, the, the pluralism of soccer, seeing soccer in all the different places around the world. And um, cause I think it, it does, you know, part of the way I frame that final chapter is around this idea of an alternative soccer is, is possible and that we don't just have to go down the road of focusing, you know, primarily on profits and performance. And um, we can think about people and places in ways that will be um, engaging and enriching also. So 
Um, you know, is it just soccer? I mean, I hope not for sure. I, I think what what is distinct about soccer is that it is the m- world's most popular sport. And so it provides you this access point all around the world. I think that um, that a lot of other sports don't provide, but I'm certainly interested in other sports too. And I think that um, there's, there's lots of, as we've been discussing, I think throughout this conversation, that there's lots of points here that are not specific to not specific to soccer, but um, soccer just provides a particularly interesting um, case because of its global, its global popularity to some extent because of its um, simplicity and, and also because of the, yeah, again, just the diversity of, of what it looks like. And I, I try to argue in that last chapter that we should really be emphasizing that just like we need, you know, biodiversity to ensure we have a healthy planet. I think we need uh, soccer diversity in order to ensure we have a healthy, healthy game and um, ways to think about the game that are not just on this inevitable trajectory towards um, sort of more highly sharpened, professionalized uh, profit machines, but but towards, um, again, thinking about the game as a cultural resource and about it as a human experience. I, lo- I love it. All right, Andrew, last question. Uh, what do, what can we uh, look forward to, to hearing about you working on next or reading uh, from you next? What, what are you working on as a final project or as a next project, pardon me? I mean, at the moment, I'm a bit bogged down in my uh, kind of university responsibilities, my administrative responsibilities. And I'm also, I am trying to sort of use this book as a chance to engage at least for the next uh, few months through the World Cup. It's it's fun that the World Cup is in the in November, December. I mean, obviously, it's also complicated that's there. But this time around for the Men's World Cup, um, it gives me a chance to teach a fall class in the U.S. semester system on the World Cup that leads right up to the actual World Cup. So that's fun. In terms of my own projects, I do. Um, I would love someday to write another book about um, sports more broadly. I have lots of uh, ideas about that and trying to bring, again, sort of social science lenses and thinking fandom to to sports more broadly. But I think in particular, what I'm hoping to work on next is is some of this, some of these same ideas of how do you actually cultivate a sense of um, critical consciousness and intellectual curiosity? It, it goes back a little bit to what you were saying at the very beginning about the challenge of doing that with students. And so much of my my work life is devoted to trying to think about how to engage students with multiple perspectives and with sort of a, a liberal arts spirit. And um, and I think really thinking about sports fans in that same way, like how do you how do you get beyond um, just the sort of unconscious consumption towards intellectual curiosity and towards a critical consciousness? So I'm hoping I have a lot of ideas for a, a next project that would engage that a, a bit more systematically and a bit more empirically. I think in the book, I talk about thinking fandom as a as a general concept, but I haven't yet really done the the, the, the scholarly work to, to define it or to unpack it in a way that um, draws on people's experiences. So that's what I'm hoping to do next. I know that's all a little vague and abstract, but that's sort of where I'm at. <laughs> with things. No, it sounds fascinating. And um, I hope when that book comes out, we'll talk about that as well. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. Thank, thank you very much for joining me, Andrew. We've been speaking with Andrew uh, Guest. He's a professor of psychology and sociology at the University of Portland in Oregon and the director of Core Curriculum. 
and he's the author of Soccer in Mind, A Thinking Fan's Guide to the Global Game, out with Rutgers University Press in 2022. It's a fascinating read. Pick up a copy. Um, I strongly encourage you to. All right. Thank you for listening to New Books and Sports, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Keith Rathbun. I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University in uh, what has been a very rainy Sydney lately. Thank you all for listening.